12 as we continue our journey through this gospel. Let me stand as I read the first few verses of our message here. We're going verses 4 through 34. We've already covered some of those uh, verses, but just as a reverse, a rehearsal of it uh, to tie it into our text this morning. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This section here, which will continue to verse 34, contains some really important life perspectives. Um, Modern technology is amazing, you know, what's going on. We kind of get addicted to it. I don't know if you've ever uh, tried using, uh, watching a 3D movie with those 3D glasses. Um, If you don't have the glasses on, you're not going to be impressed with flat. But uh, you put those 3D glasses on, and and when they take effect, you're able to really enjoy the overall experience. In fact, it kind of just draws you in even that much more. And uh, those glasses are kind of like our worldview. Uh, you need that set of lenses. You need a biblical lens to view this complicated world that's around us. You've got to put your biblical glasses on if you want to understand what's going on. If you fail to do that, your worldview will be skewed. You'll have a false sense of reality. And I think that's why Jesus came. He came to say things that had never been spoken before. He came to give us a real picture of true reality. And these perspectives that he mentions here as he's instructing his disciples are very important to us. Uh, We started out in verse 4 there, and he gives us the perfect perspective on who we're to fear. We're to fear God Almighty. Because why? He's the ultimate authority. He can kill. He can make alive. He can save. He can destroy. And the thing about him is that he never forgets. We're of great value to him. He's placed an infinite value upon the souls of men. But we understand that we're in a warfare. And uh, he does his very best to deceive us and to tell us lies about our maker but that's why Jesus came we always need to be reminded of what it costs God and how he demonstrated our value by giving his own life 
He became one of us. I think that is one of the most amazing things about the Bible. And then to be crucified by the hands of those he, that he created. That sacrifice destroyed the power of the enemy. You know, it is through the, act, the work of the cross that, that love and justice met together. Peace and righteousness kissed each other, the Bible says. God can be both loving and just at the same time through the cross. And there's three things I'd like to communicate through these verses that we are going through this morning. Number one is to trust God. That's the ultimate thing in, in this life is to just simply trust him when you don't know and you don't understand what is going on. The second thing Jesus was communicated in, in verses 13 through 21, which we'll read in a little bit, was not to obligate God, to lay things at God's feet and expect things from him that we have no right uh, to expect from him. And then lastly, just live your life. Live your life before God and for his glory. And that's what Jesus instructed his disciples to do. You know, fear will cause us to make choices and do things we ordinarily wouldn't do. And that's why we got to get off this horizontal axis when it comes to being loyal to God. We should not fear being loyal to God. Like, oh, what's going to happen to me if I really stand up for Jesus? We, don't, we shouldn't worry about that. That's the most important thing in our life is simply be, to be loyal to him. Has he not demonstrated loyal love to us? And that's all he expects in return. You know, and if we're unwilling to openly confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, eh, I think we might want to examine our faith. Paul challenged the church in Corinth uh, to conduct a personal heart search because, um, as you know, some of their behavior was not in line with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's just put it that way. And he challenged them, examine yourselves to see if you really are in the faith. I think that's a good exhortation for the church of Jesus Christ today. You name the name of Christ is to depart from iniquity. You know, our lives should be bearing fruit. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, is, Paul lays it out to them. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And the word disqualified here means uh, they were not standing the test. They were failing the test as, uh, in the fruit of the Spirit that was in their lives. There was a lot of uh, relying upon human ability. They were a wealthy community. Corinth, as you know, was a port city, so there was a lot of trade there. And when you have wealth and you have things at your disposal, it's pretty easy to lean upon the physical and to actually think you're more spiritual and have more faith than you really have. That really seems to be the problem with our culture, is it not? We have all the materialism that you could ever dream of. We're living in Babylon. It's, it's all right here for us, right? not standing the test. Literally, from the Greek, it means bogus. Isn't that crazy? You don't want to be bogus for Jesus, right? Paul, Paul says, look, we're not bogus. <laughs> we're, we're not fake apostles. <laughs> and so he said hard things to the Corinthian church. 
because they were church, and it's a, those are corrective epistles that are written to them, and it was necessary uh, because they needed to change their ways. And yet we know that there are those in the church today that are unwilling to be corrected, uh, so they'll just remove themselves uh, from any accountability by simply not coming to church, not being around other Christians, like, you know, I don't need that, I'll, I can make it on my own, you know, type of a thing. You know, but be assured at some point in time, who we really are and what we're all about is going to be made manifest. Truth is always a great revealer of, time is a great revealer of truth. It always comes out in the end. In the end, it's all going to be exposed, just how loyal we were and how loyal we are to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a wake-up call for those who are afraid to confess Jesus before men. And there's something about confession that's important. We speak, as the Bible says, out of the abundance of our heart. If it's really here, if it's really deep down in your soul, it's going to come out of your mouth. You just, it just, they're intuitively and completely tied together. Romans 10, 8 through 13, um, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, uh, explains this truth to them. But what does it say? This is Romans 8, or Romans 10, 8 through 13. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him would not be put to shame. There's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has made salvation so easy to receive. Now that doesn't make the Christian life easy, but it, salvation is easy to obtain if you'll believe and trust the Lord Jesus. And God doesn't expect you to you know, toe the line and be perfect. He knows you and I are going to make mistakes. We are in the flesh. We have a fallen nature. But he has made provision for that. This is what stumbles so many people. They try to keep the law. They try to relate to God once they're saved on the basis of their performance. You, you, you can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. You're going to slip up. You're going to tell a lie. You're going to tell a fib. You're going to do something that you know is not what it should be. And then if you're relating to God, then you're going to be condemned. And then you're not going to, you know, the devil's just going to have a heyday beating you up. But when you relate to the God on the basis of grace, realizing that you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to wash you and to cleanse you and set you free. It's learning how to walk with God, learning how to engage God from your heart. Our confession, what does that mean? It's just an open expression of your allegiance. Who, are, who do you give your allegiance to? Do you give it to the Lord Jesus Christ? To the government? Well, at least to some degree. <laughs> or is it to yourself? I mean, you're going to give your allegiance to something. I mean, that, what that means is you're going to do what you think is most important for you. And whatever comes out of your mouth reveals who you are and what you are, right? Who I am and what I am. 
So our confession is important. Our speech will also be judged. You know, we might say bad things about Jesus and you're going to get off the hook. He can forgive that. That is forgivable. Think of all the evil things that have been spoken of over all the ages and all the years and the generations from time to time and eons of people, just millions of people who have blasphemed Jesus Christ. Why is it that when people make a mistake, they say Jesus Christ and they don't say Buddha? They don't say Muhammad. Oh, Muhammad. Oh, you know. They don't do that, do they? It's always Jesus Christ. Isn't that sad? Why is that? Because there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. Buddha can't save you. Muhammad hasn't got a chance in saving anyone. He didn't even save himself. How can he save anyone? Our Our speech will be judged. If you speak against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, this is really a trip some people up. When I served in the office at Bible College, it seemed like you'd get this call every couple months. It seemed like, I, can, I, I, can I talk to a pastor? Yeah, okay, well, what's going on? I, I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Oh, really? Tell me, what, tell, tell me what happened. Well, I was thinking this bad thought, and I just... Curse the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, let's, let's break this down a little bit. First of all, I want you to relax. If you commit the sin of the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be concerned about it, number one. Right? Your, heart, your heart's hardened. It means, to blaspheme means to speak irreverently against the sacredness and calling what is good evil and what is holy evil. And of course, when we look in the context here, this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were calling the works of Jesus of Beelzebub, of the devil. They were attributing the works, the, the healings, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the multitude, the raising of the dead, and a number of things uh, that Jesus did is, uh, in attributing it to the devil. And so this... To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to attribute the works of God to the enemy. That is really the basis of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But it is a, no forgiveness comes from a complete rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. So if a person comes under conviction and they know they've done something wrong, they're no longer resisting that, right? They're just like this person who would call in, they're convicted that they said or thought something that was wrong. Now, a person who is rejecting the Holy Spirit doesn't care and, and is just completely blows that off, if you will. You can reject Jesus, and that's wrong. You can despise Jesus, and that's wrong. You can do a lot of things against Jesus, but it can be forgiven. But if you resist the one who bears witness to the truth about God... You reject Jesus as your Savior and the only means of salvation that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your consciousness, then there's no other way God can save you. How can you be forgiven if you're rejecting the offering of forgiveness? How can you receive the Holy Spirit if you're pushing him away? And this is what people do. Paul wrote boldly to the doubting Hebrews who were thinking, 
I don't know if I can handle this persecution anymore. I think I'm going to go back to Judaism. You know, where's the sheep and the goats, you know? This is obviously before 70 AD that, that this was written. But Hebrews 10.29 puts it this way. And he's a warning. Paul is warning the Hebrew Christians who are turning tail and running because of persecution. The fire was getting hot. Trials were getting more intense. Many of them had been disowned and disinherited because they turned away uh, from Judaism to follow the way, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will, be, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? has an insulted and insulted the spirit of grace. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You are counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing. You're not looking at the blood of Jesus as most precious. And that will be judged. That, by definition, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. God cannot save you by the only means that he's given, whereby men must be saved. Now, there are people who have experienced hurtful things in their life. There's not a person in this audience here that hasn't suffered something very painful. Sorrow and pain are part of all of our lives. And a lot of us are damaged by those things. There are things that, that cannot be undone and they cannot be removed. It is just part of our life experience. And I would never personally want to minimize anyone else's sorrow or pain uh, that you may have had to endure. Life is hard. Times, times it's very harsh and it's, it's almost beyond bearing. But you think about people who have endured such things and continued on following the Lord because they received grace and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there are others who become angry with God and embittered against God because he's allowed these evil things to come upon them and transpire against them. What I guess I'm trying to say is in these difficult situations, we're not to question the goodness of God because that's exactly what happens in those times. Satan is always there to blaspheme the nature and character of God. And when we are suffering and when we are in pain and when we feel life is unfair, what better time for Satan to come and whisper in her ear that God is not good. Because if God was really good, you wouldn't be going through this. If God really cared, then he would have prevented this from happening to you. See, that's what Satan wants. He wants people to believe that God is not good and that he cannot be trusted. And those are lies. That's how he deceives. And that's how he keeps fallen mankind in bondage. That's how he keeps man from coming to God and receiving from God. So when things go bad, don't we always just look for someone to blame? Someone's at fault here and someone's got to be blamed. And of course, 
God seems to be the one that always gets blamed for all the bad things. Well, think about all the good things that he's done for us. He is good. If you don't have your biblical glasses on and you don't have the proper worldview, then your view is going to be skewed. You're not going to understand. You're going to be confused. Now, nobody likes pain and nobody likes sorrow. Nobody likes suffering. But there's sufficient grace. And one of these days, all the questions that we've been harboring in our hearts, why God? When we stand before him, you'll be able to work all those things out. And in the end, I'm just pretty sure, as I'm standing here this morning, I'm pretty sure it's really not going to matter that much when we see him in his fullness and in his glory. It's going to seem so minuscule. Like, just forget it, Lord. This is what Paul says. I reckon that the present sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. It hurts. But that's no reason to become angry and embittered against God because God is good. And he's always good. And he's able to take the evil things that Satan means to destroy us and turn us away from God. He's able to take all those things and use them for good in our lives. Now, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it, but he does do it. God help us to just trust him, no matter how hurtful our experience may be. Our faith will be tested. We're not to fear man, we're to trust him. Our words will be just. Notice how he says there in verse 12, when we get into a rough place, when we're suffering that kind of persecution and our lives may be on the line uh, before the magistrates. I mean, this really did happen to the apostles. They all were martyred, you know. When we stand before the authorities of the government or whatever, there's no need for us, as he says, to be anxious. The Holy Spirit will give give us what we need. Verses 13 through 21, as follows. Then one of the crowds said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And so he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. So what about inheritance? You know, well, it's funny how we have a way of obligating to God for certain things. We feel as though we're entitled to certain things and we... uh, We'll lay things at God's feet that we ought not on occasion. But as we walk with the Lord, we learn not to do that. We grow. Um, he 
is not the arbitrator of our stuff. That's been delegated to us from our families, right? Uh, but he can arbitrate for us if we let him. And in the end, we just let him give us what he thinks is best for us. The important thing is when it comes to inheritance on an earthly level, we, we should really keep that in, the, in its place, which is secondary. The Bible, what does the Bible teach us about inheritance? He has something for each one of his kids. The Bible says that he is our inheritance. We inherit God. Isn't that something? If you have God, what else do you need in the end, right? And then it also says this too, that we, the church, believers, are God's inheritance. We are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. We inherit him. He inherits us. Sounds like a big family operation, doesn't it? That's great. You know, you have to come down and settle in your heart the place that God has placed you and the place that he's placed me. This is our place. This is our realm. This is our sphere of influence. And when we learn to just accept what God, who we are and where he's placed us, we have such a peace and a contentment that'll fill our souls. Acts 17, 25 Paul is explaining this to the smart guys, the Athenians there at, on Mars Hill, Acts 17, 25. Since he gives life, breath, and all things, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell upon the face of the earth. He's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these things, times, of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so this is a clear delineation of that we should understand where we live and move and have our being and where we were born in time has all been mapped out and predetermined, if you will, by God. Not our choices, but the times in which we would live. And so... You know, I know some of you would wish you lived back in the Bible times. We all kind of fantasize about that. Wouldn't that have been great to be, you know, see Jesus and walk around Galilee with him? Oh, no? Okay. <laughs> I mean, we have those things. Well, why, I don't really wish I was born, you know, maybe 100 years ago. This is a mess. I wish I was, you know. We have our reasons for imagining certain things, but... Rest assured, we are where we are in time because God placed us here. And we know the scripture in Esther. God has placed us here for such a time as this. So there's a reason and a purpose that you and I are here at this time to do certain things that only we can do. That's part of our imaging responsibility before him. So this whole thing in this story is a warning about Covetousness, about being stuck on this horizontal axis with stuff and physic, the physicality of life. And Jesus said, take heed, which he says 
quite often in the scriptures, does he not? And it means to watch carefully, pay attention to our heart attitude, to beware of covetousness, guard yourself, restrain yourself from this temptation. We all have a natural inclination that to have stuff. Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? And so obligating the Lord to give us stuff is not really fair. It's not something that we should do. It's not loving. I mean, you know, we don't really appreciate other people uh, assuming our activities or planning our schedule for us, right? Asking us for certain things just because maybe they know we have the ability to, to do so. So why would we, you know, we don't want them, that to happen to us, right? I mean, after all, you know, we're busy people. So why would we put that on God? Sometimes we, we wouldn't want it done to us, but we don't have a problem projecting it upon God. It's the point here. You know, a lot of people find fault with God because he doesn't give them the things that they, they ask for. Uh, you know, God doesn't cater uh, to all their desires, and so they're offended. Well, you know, you treat God like some cosmic errand boy, you can expect to be disappointed because he's not that. He's a loving, heavenly father who knows what's best and has the best interest in mind for all of his children, as a good father does. So watch ourselves carefully and be on guard to restrain ourselves in this area because it's a natural inclination of our flesh. And if you have trouble believing that truth, I want to encourage you to join the toddler's ministry (laughs) down below. You see a room full of little pumpkin heads with toys. And let's just see how willing they are to share some of their stuff (laughs) with others. So this, as Jesus' method is, he states a truth, and if it's a really important truth, he'll bring a parable, a story alongside to illustrate that truth because he, it's important. This life perspective is critical. It's important. So he'll, he'll bring it forth. And in this one, we have this rich man who's very agriculturally successful. Uh, he's created a good problem. He's got more than he needs. He's got an abundance uh, beyond what he could ever use himself. And he comes up, he has a question, not a bad question, but a good question. What am I going to do with my abundance? Probably most of us in this room have, answer, have asked the same question of the stuff we have. What are we going to do with the abundance of our stuff? So you can see where this really hits home. Well, not, of course not to you. I know it does to me, right? I know what I'll do. I'm just going to make room for more. <laughs> I'm going to store up my abundance. And then I'm going to relax and enjoy my life. As he says there, eat, drink, and be merry. That's, uh, have we heard that somewhere else? That's people who lack faith. And so, as he's making room for more, what is he illustrating? Well, number one, he has a me-centered life. He's self-centered. He's concerned about himself only. And that's, that's really sad living. That's poor living. There's no satisfaction in that. You know, living a me-centered life never leads to any long-term satisfaction. It can't. 
or to be other-centered as Jesus was other-centered. But what is, the, what is his mistake here? It's presumption. He's presuming upon the future, projecting his future as though it's going to continue as his past has been. He's rich. So he's been doing this for a while, not just this season, but for a while he's become very wealthy. His land has pr- produced abundantly for him. And so he's projecting his future to be as his past has been, which he's thinking this is going to continue. A continued presumption of longevity and prosperity. And God's response to presuming of the future, this is foolish. It is foolish thinking to think that what I've experienced up to this point in life is to be projected forward as if the future will be as the past. And it's rarely that way. You know, you know, this really does hit home. You know, we have everything we could ever want for the most part in our culture. Uh, we, we know that we can't store things indefinitely. There's a shelf life, right? Um, and we usually think that the shelf life is actually longer than it really is because sometimes by the time we get to what we've stored away, it's, uh, it's beyond the expiration date, right? It's no longer worthy to be kept because it's spoiled on us, right? You know, how many things have I stored up for futures and only had to throw it away? Why would I not just share it before it expires, right? But it takes time to think those kinds of things through. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to not hoard for ourselves, but to learn how to share. You know, you just can't outgive God. What is it? We have this fear right? That we're not going to have enough. So I pack my lunch in the morning, or my wife packs my lunch when I go out and about my business. And I look in the box and think, ah, is it going to be enough? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I put a little bit more in there. And like, and I get back home and I haven't barely touched anything. You weren't hungry today, honey? (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) I guess got busy, you know. It's crazy how we are, isn't it? And in closing here in these last few verses, what's God really, and what is Jesus really trying to tell his disciples? Don't live for yourself. Live for God. Give, Give your all to living for him and experiencing his presence. Part of that is by not worrying, right? Verse 22 says, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life's more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse or, nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. Your Father knows that you have need of these things, but seek the kingdom of God Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have. Give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail for where you're where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For your treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just a powerful exhortation and instruction from Christ. Live a worry-free life. Don't worry about your food. Don't be so body conscious. You're not going to be naked, Right? Have eternal perspective. Look at yourself as the Father sees you. Now, he uses nature, you know, as a perspective. The ravens, which is an unclean bird, according to the law. And he's using, you know, and sometimes we think we're unfit and unclean before God, but yet God feeds the ravens. He takes care of the unclean birds. Will he not take care of Unclean humanity, yes. The Bible tells that God is even kind and gracious to the unthankful. Think about that for a moment. God is gracious and good to people who hate him, who blaspheme him, who reject him. How much more will he be kind and gracious to those who love him and serve him? But he only gives those things that are good and beneficial to us. He doesn't give things that are going to destroy us. Doesn't the Bible say that he adds riches without sorrow? That's how he does it. He knows what you and I can handle and what we can't handle. And so if we feel we're being deprived, it's only because he thinks it would be best for us not to have it. So I can actually thank God for answering some, not answering some of the things that I have prayed for. Because I know my father's actually protecting me from me. And that's important. I would not be 5'6". I would probably be closer to 6'4". If I had faith. (laughs) But I don't let it bother me. (laughs) But I can't even do that. I can't even make myself taller. Neither can you. And every hair, as he said, is... Numbered, some of you have less than others, but that's beside the point. He knows everything about us. And he loves us. He cares about us. Do you think he loves the flowers a little bit more than you? Look, but he knows they're only temporal. This is how you have to see your life. My life, I am just passing through. This is not my home. This is not where I'm going to spend eternity. Thank you, Lord. And so he's trying to give his followers a perspective. 
Now, think about this for a moment. Some of us um, have lived longer than others in the room here, in in our audience. And yet, no doubt, some of you have lost relatives at a young age. They lived to be in their teens, maybe early 20s, and they, they left the scene early. Wow. And now, we don't know. We're just passing through. He wants us to have the right perspective, and that right perspective is to view our lives from an eternal perspective. We need a biblical lens to look at what matters the most, and it isn't stuff. It isn't stuff. It's people. There's only th- certain things that are going to take from this world, is it? Isn't that, isn't that true? The eternal things upon this earth right now are the souls of men and the word of God and the works that you perform and how you conducted yourself in your relationships with other people. That's what matters. That's what we're, we're going to be judged for. And so that's the kind of perspective that we should have. We, don't, we, should, not, we should pray to be delivered from and, and not be seeking stuff and not be anxious about stuff. I'm learning a big lesson about that right now in my own personal life. Not to be anxious about all the stuff that needs to be done. Some of you workaholics, you can relate. You need deliverance. God is here to help us. <laughs> Seek first the kingdom of God. That's a good rule of thumb to follow, is it not? I've never known anyone. I've, never, I've yet to meet someone who put the Lord first and saw his kingdom first be disappointed. Never seen it. You see, when we keep the spiritual part of our lives as primary and the physical part secondary, then it just seems to work out. Everything falls into place. And you live a life of peace. It's just, it's just the way it's supposed to be. And it comes by God delivering me from me, right? So my job is to maintain my devotional life. If I maintain that and I keep the spiritual primary that everything else falls into place, I'm getting rid of things that I don't need, selling the extras, right? I'm giving stuff away. I'm learning how to be generous. That's, that's learned, by the way. By nature, we're the toddlers, right? We're the toddlers. Mine. <laughs> it's a grace that's learned. No, he says, who's the greatest giver of all, right? Does anybody give more than God? He just, I mean, sustains creation. You know, he's got the universe from here to there in his hand. See, this is one thing the, the, the atheists cannot quite figure out. They, they can't get God, that God's got to be on this material level. No, no, no. You got it all wrong. Your mind's not big enough. Nobody's mind's big enough to grasp the incomparable incomprehensible God that we serve. He's outside the material universe. He's outside of all of that. He's eternal. Can you get your mind around eternity? No. Don't even try. I don't want to hurt you. Don't hurt yourself. He's eternal. I mean, if he comes near the earth, what happens? It melts. That should give you a hint that he's pretty awesome. We're to trust God. We're not to obligate God. We're to live For God, that's our place. And it's the exhortation here is to know your heart. 
know, learn yourself, know yourself, know your propensities and deal with them and be honest and don't let your sin nature get the best of you. Use that biblical lens that you've been given and see things through the Lord's eyes. May God bless us to those ends. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these incredible reminders from Jesus, the perspectives that you sent him to deliver to us because we definitely, most desperately needed to see these things and understand these things. Oh, Lord, they mean nothing if we just hear them and forget them. They only become real when we seek to walk in them. And so we pray for that grace, Lord, in each one of our lives. Give us more grace to apply the truth of your word to our hearts and to our lives. We want to live for you with all of our heart, Lord. We do understand that we are just passing through. So God, help us and keep us. Be with my brothers and sisters, Lord. This week, give us all a great week as we walk with you day by day. Yes, Lord, continue to meet our needs. You know the needs in each one of our lives. And we pray you'd be so gracious and so abundant in our lives that we can share with others all that you're giving to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've